When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 7th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government will make an announcement by the end of this week which will map out the ways it hopes to help low-income households cope with how the cost of living is soaring and how it will continue to get even more expensive to live in this country over the coming months. The Taoiseach Michal Martin said yesterday that the increase in inflation will last for the medium term. It had been thought inflation would only rise in the short term and we're all very much aware of how the price of everything is going up but the stark reality for so many people now comes down to choosing between eating or heating their homes. Carbon taxes will add to the cost of heat and in a separate bid to help households bring down energy bills, grants of up to €25,000 are to be made available for retrofitting houses. Let's speak to Elaine Locke who is uh, the Deputy Political Editor of uh, the Irish Examiner. A very good morning to you, Elaine, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. And uh, the Irish Examiner is reporting uh, today that we can expect a doubling in that €100 Euro that the government is giving uh, to knock off our electricity bills. Uh, that will double to €200 or €226 Euro in value, in other words. Yes, Michael, and you remember before Christmas that €100 Euro energy credit or electricity credit was announced by government. We had anticipated that people, households would get it as early as January. Now it will be probably March before measures are in fully in place that people will receive that €100 Euro credit um, and we'll see that coming in. The government now, because of, as you said, inflation is rising at 25% now at this stage, um, people are really feeling the pinch in their pockets. The government knows that it needs to do more. And what they're looking at now is a range of options. Among them is a second €100 Euro credit. Now, unlike the initial uh, credit that was announced, this will be a more targeted um, rebate. People, lower income families um, and lower income households will receive the double payment, shall we say. Mm. Um, and they're also looking at other other items. I think ministers have been asked to go away now ahead of um, this week and see where potentially they could find uh, ways of saving money for people. Um, and they're, they're looking at um, the health sector, they're looking at transport costs, and also, as you mentioned, maybe more longer term, but certainly would help people, is 
upgrading and retrofitting of houses. And um, they seem to be the main areas. We may see see as well something around fuel allowance that hasn't been really um, hasn't really been decided on yet. Mm. These are all the things that are in the ether and that ministers are considering now as a way of, of easing that burden on people. Uh, and they wouldn't uh, be increasing the weekly fuel allowance, would they, Elaine? Uh, it's that the fuel allowance uh, would be extended out and paid over a longer period of time. Yes, and it does seem like a lot of these um, changes that come into place um, and due to be announced probably later this week would be once-off um, items that would help people immediately. Um, Taoiseach was out last yesterday, uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin, and was saying that speed is a key factor in any decision that will be made because mm. the government are very aware that people are struggling now. So something that perhaps was announced or would be announced in next year's budget in October is not going to help people who can't or who are struggling to pay bills pay for heating, pay for lighting and and put food on the table. So that's why they're looking at this, especially around this €100 Euro credit. And then, as I said, perhaps uh, some sort of a change around health charges, which may be temporary, and as well transport charges. That seems to be um, also being considered at the moment. OK, I suppose that when uh, the government is caught off guard like that, it has the option of having a, a mini-budget, but the Taoiseach has ruled out any such prospects. Yes, that's been absolutely ruled out. So any social social welfare payments um, or increases to that won't happen. There'll be no increase in VAT either because, of course, that needs a, an actual budget or a mini-budget. But the Taoiseach has said, no, absolutely no way <laughs> we're going for a mini-budget. I suppose when you think back to mini-budgets or second budgets, you do think back to that era of austerity and maybe that's why the government is loads to go in that direction because it does have it does bring up bad memories for people of cuts across the board and those dark dark days when we were in recession so I, mm. I don't think they'd like to draw the link between um, the 2008-2009 era um, and now Okay, there's uh, a lot of pressure coming on the government as well from the opposition. Uh, there's kind of a, a mantra coming from the opposition benches which is you just don't get it uh, which uh, sort of points to a, a divide uh, between uh, those who are making decisions uh, for people who are in that terrible position of having to choose between eating or heating, as uh, the case may be, and the real hardships uh, that they're facing into. And you were talking about the €100 Euro earlier on, uh, and because that was a universal payment, uh, Elaine, uh, it meant everybody got it, no matter who they were or how much they needed it or had no use for it at all. Uh, if you take Robert Watt, the highest paid civil servant in the country, at almost €300,000 now, he'd have got the €100 as would those on welfare. The opposition has been saying, why not increase welfare? Why not get away with carbon tax or do away with the carbon tax increases uh, and that sort of uh, thing? Uh, But of course, uh, the government uh, has its own ideas on all of these things uh, and is saying, well, we have to do something about climate change. Yes, and the carbon tax um, minister, Pascal Donoghue, was speaking to my colleague, Daniel McConnell, over the weekend and has ruled out um, any pausing of the increase in carbon taxes, carbon taxes will be increased and that form of taxation will continue as planned even though there is this pressure on households at the moment. The idea behind it is that the government can do a lot with those carbon taxes to ease uh, the cost of living on people in the longer term um, and one of the measures that we uh, that we anticipate will come to 
Cabinet this week is this new um, home energy upgrade scheme mm. that will allow people to essentially deep retrofit their homes. Um, and by doing that, by bringing, let's say, your home up from an E rating, which yeah. a lot of older homes would be at the moment, to perhaps a B rating, you could potentially save two thirds um, of the cost of the current cost of heating your home. So in the longer term, you're saving a greater amount of money. Um, and we know that around 5 billion of the 9.5 billion carbon taxes that will be taken in by the uh, by the government by, or by the state in coming years will go into the likes of this deep retrofitting and help to help people upgrade their homes. Now, at the moment, there are some retrofitting schemes out there. You know, you kind of, yes, the EAI has been up and running for a long number of years at this stage, but you kind of get, you know, the likes of €700 Euro for upgrading your heating or €400 Euro for attic insulation. So they're, they're, they're helpful and they're sizable mm. um, grants, but this will go far beyond that. Um, but this, this new scheme due to be announced is expected to give out, it could be up to €25,000 for a family home. Yeah, which is a, a lot of money, obviously, uh, but that will be to help pay for a, a bill that uh, runs over 50000 uh, It'll be about half uh, the cost of deep-fitting a home. Yes, around 45 to 51% um, grant you'll get. So you still have to come up with the mm. other 50%, but they are talking about also, in tandem with this, introducing low-interest r- loans. So making, if people do have to take out a loan to cover the, the remainder of this deep retrofit or all the work that it requires, um, that they will get it at, at a low interest rate and, and it will be more affordable as well. Mm. So they really seem to be t- thinking this out. And of course, it is in the programme for government that uh, around half a million homes would be upgraded to a B2 rating by 2030. So this is all part of it. And the government now, I suppose they acknowledge and they know that there is a lot of heat coming on them, as you said before, Michael, from the opposition. And this is perhaps good timing to announce something Mm. like this, um, that it looks like they are proactive and they are really helping people, not just in the short term with the likes of the 100% credit, but in the long term with grant schemes like this that will actually make a massive difference yeah. in people's yeah. life and, and the way uh, they live and the, and the costs. And I, I think a lot of people know that. I think there's been so much talk uh, about how you can uh, insulate your house uh, and improve the heating in it and uh, the ventilation in it and all of that sort of thing that people are very much aware of it. And I think that's uh, probably a lot of people who've held off waiting to get this work done, knowing that there would be a scheme such as this. And it's not just uh, for the uh, full uh, retrofit, that 25,000, which would go into all that stuff with the heat pumps uh, and uh, some of uh, the bigger uh, ticket items uh, but uh, as you say there's existing schemes those schemes could be improved on that there'll be more money for insulation uh, or um, there'll be things like new doors and windows uh, that might be available to people under this scheme we'll get the details of it all tomorrow I think when the Minister uh, brings his uh, bill to Cabinet Yes, as you said, it's not just for a person who wants to overhaul their entire home. There will be those smaller uh, grants available as well. Um, And it it is essentially the Greens putting their stamp on government and really wanting to make an impact. Um, They really are pushing ahead with this now. Um, And as the smallest party of the three in government, they will want to be making an impact and wanting to be able to point to when, when it comes to election time to point to various measures that they introduced and without them in government wouldn't have gone ahead and this is certainly one of them 
Um, mm. It'll be interesting. While the details are currently vague, it'll be interesting to see what the transport charges um, or if they even come to pass because they, they have been one of the things as well that have been announced to help people both in the short and longer term. Yeah. And again, that would probably be a green measure because we have Eamon Ryan in the Department of Transport at the moment. Um, again, there wasn't a large amount of detail on that over the weekend. As I said, ministers are being asked to come up with ideas. Um, and I suppose the best or easiest to implement will be accepted and, and the government will go ahead with those mm. in the coming weeks. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of talk uh, about that as well. Uh, I think Breed Smith is bringing forward proposals on free public transport or free buses anyway in line with what they do in Luxembourg. But there's also talk about free Fridays and different things like that to encourage people to stop using the car and get on to the train or the bus or, or their bicycle as the case may be. But when it comes to the work on the homes, Elaine, all well and good having all of this money and uh, the scheme in place that people will qualify for if they can get somebody to do the work and that could be the biggest problem. Well that's it and um, we do see construction costs spiralling at the moment Um, so perhaps even if you were able to get a a local builder or tradesman in to do the work you could be quite surprised with the bill that you get um, even if it is up to 50% of it is covered by this grant. But yes, um, I suppose every every announcement the government makes does also have an impact down the line and perhaps it, it may be a case that the government should be looking at more apprenticeships um, making sure that we do have enough people in the construction sector to cover um, the demand that this grant will undoubtedly create uh, for builders and for tradespeople. So as I said, it, everything has a knock-on impact and, and I think it definitely will have a knock-on impact on, on the construction industry. Okay, and just on that €100 Euro of the electricity, uh, when you uh, take fashion into account, it comes to 113 uh, that's mm-hmm. to be paid on the double, you reckon. Uh, will the two payments be made at once or will they be uh, at uh, different times? It remains to be seen whether they will perhaps stagger it to help people because the second one, of course, will only go to uh, low-income households. So it remains to be seen whether they do it maybe two months in a row to help with, Mm. you know, uh, multiple bills or whether it will be in one chunk. Um, That's a decision that has to be weighed up by government because if you give it in one chunk, obviously people are getting it earlier and there is that need and that desire to Mm. act quickly around this. As the Taoiseach said, you know, we really do need to do things that that are immediate or as immediate as possible. Mm. so it's it's a it's a juggling game for government and it'll be something that they will consider. Yeah, well, it's very worrying, isn't it, uh, when you see uh, the government looking on the cost of living as an emergency and trying to get money into people's pockets so that they can afford to turn on the lights or whatever the case may be. Uh, and I gather that everybody is hoping against hope that things won't change with mortgage interest rates because if they start to go up, as people will remember they did, uh, there were uh, times... Uh, in the 1980s uh, where mortgage interest rates were around 16-17% for some people uh, that could really crucify an awful lot of people 
Yes, and we're kind of around the 3% mark for most people at the moment, and that, but that's well beyond um, our EU counterparts. We're significantly higher than most countries already, so that certainly would put a lot of pressure on people. And you have to remember that there's a lot of people out there, homeowners, who are still in negative equity, mm. even though house prices have increased significantly over the past two years. Um, so a lot of people still struggling with mortgage and mortgage repayments and even the value of their home. So yeah. um, that would be definitely something to be watched carefully. Absolutely. Can't uh, afford the mortgage, can't afford to sell because you'd end up owing so much uh, because uh, you're in negative equity, you wouldn't get a, as much in the sale price as needed. Uh, Elaine, uh, there's some dark days ahead by the sounds of it uh, and uh, we'll all be watching closely to see what the government has to say this week in terms of trying to help us through it. But thank you indeed for joining us this morning on the programme. Elaine Lachlan is the Deputy Political Editor with the Irish Examiner. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the Green Party will be making its presence in government uh, felt uh, this week, uh, and not just through uh, that uh, retrofitting scheme, the details of which we'll be getting tomorrow. But let's get details of another government uh, policy that uh, the Green Party is putting its stamp all over the town centre first policy. And we're joined by Minister of State for Heritage and Electoral Reform, Malcolm Noonan. Good morning. Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We're all very much uh, aware of derelict buildings and unused buildings and opportunities that seem to go unnoticed in our town centres, and uh, this policy is hoping to address exactly some of those problems. It is. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. And certainly what we've all seen over the last uh, decade, but even longer, we've seen a a deterioration in the quality of urban life in our town centres, and it's something the Irish town is unique in a European context. It's something, you know, in terms of its built heritage, architecture, but also uh, shop fronts, all of the, the, the lovely features that we love specifically about our town centres have deteriorated. We've seen as well perhaps a lot of out-of-town, edge-of-town development which have impacted negatively on uh, with a donut effect on our town centres and a sub-organisation. So what we're trying to achieve is, uh, is a, a reimagining and a rethinking and refocus on our urban centres and what they could mean as places for people and places for people to live and to shop and to interact. It's something that we've always done well here for centuries. So really what the policy about a whole of government policy is around turning that narrative around and putting a renewed focus on our town centres to regenerate and to revitalise them and to make them vibrant and, and healthy again. Okay, uh, you're describing it as a, a multi-billion euro I- investment. Is there any new money in this or is it a, a, an approach uh, to how that money is being used and uh, the uh, authorities uh, that that money is channeled through working together? That's pretty much it. It's not really new money. I mean, I think there, if uh, Minister Heather Humphreys and my, my colleague, Minister Peter Bork, we've worked collaboratively on this and, and, and within various departments to look at funding streams that are already there. We look at what happened with our towns through COVID, where a lot of uh, pedestrian one-way systems came in, where we had more public spaces for people to sit out. But really what this is consolidating that, but also putting in place a whole network of town regeneration officers, rolling out the collaborative town centre health check programme, which some of your listeners in Dundalk would be very familiar with, because mm. uh, Dundalk was one of the first towns to roll out the collaborative town centre health check. And they've been really progressive because they've had a, a Dundalk bids, a business improvement district for some years, which has been really successful in regenerating Dundalk Town Centre. And you see some of the, the physical manifestation of that 
with the paint above the shop schemes. The, the, the physical appearance of Dundalk now looks fantastic. And we want to see that replicated in towns throughout Ireland. So really this is about trying to consolidate a lot of disparate policies that have been taking place over many years as we try to meet this big challenge, bring them all together, put in a focused level of support by government, but also to ensure that towns themselves, by establishing town teams, are ready for this big, great uh, uh, challenge ahead. And I think uh, many of them are really excited about the launch mm. of this policy. And I think it's um, it's testament to the work that's going on in local communities that they're ready for this now. All right. Uh, is it to uh, bring us in line with uh, the way other European countries uh, look at town centres and the things that they do in them? Because there was a lot of work, as you say, Minister, uh, through COVID uh, in terms of trying to help us to live and uh, socialise outdoors and that sort of thing. Uh, but there is a cultural problem and perhaps one of the challenges is trying to bring people with you because uh, I think there was a, a lot of resistance to what were a lot of good schemes. If you look at the parklets, uh, there were people uh, complaining uh, that they were taking up pathways and uh, obstructing uh, people in wheelchairs or so on. You look at uh, how a street in Malahide was pedestrianised and people want that reopened to traffic. Uh, I think uh, there's similar problems in Capel Street in Dublin. Yeah, and there's no doubt the urban space is a contentious space. Everybody has a view on it, uh, be it retailers, be it people who go into town to shop, uh, be it motorists. And I think from that point of view, what we're, what we're bringing to this with Town Centres First is a, a collaborative approach that we have to work together. And again, I go back to that experience from Dundalk when they embarked on that collaborative Town Centre health check. We identified the problems and the challenges. And sometimes they're not always the challenges that people think they are. Mm. You know, they might think it's, it's rates, they might think it's parking charges, but actually it might be something different. So really it's about bringing people on board. And I've been working on a lot of with European partners over the last number of years on, and they've had the exact same set of challenges the same set of resistance around pedestrianisation, but we really have to reimagine and rethink these spaces to make them more cycle and pedestrian friendly, to see what the potential is above shops, to get the lights back in above those shop premises and get families living in them again. Mm. So all of these things combined, really what we're trying to do here is bring that together in a coherent approach and support the towns to do it themselves. It really is unreal when you walk around any of uh, the town centres in uh, the country and look above the shops uh, and there's so much property uh, and so much opportunity but it would cost an awful lot of money I think uh, when you do look at the state that they're in the state of disrepair that they're in to bring uh, those buildings back uh, into use to get them to a standard that they could be used for people to live in. This is the challenge, and again, from I say this from a heritage perspective, a lot of them are 19th or uh, early 20th century buildings, so they're thermally inefficient. They need a huge amount of retrofit and uh, good conservation standards to get them up to up to a livable, habitable uh, quality. So, a lot of the grant schemes we've had in our department over the last number of years have been targeting exactly that, and we're seeing really good examples of of families wanting and choosing to live in in town centres because they get the option of being near a public park, near a public library, where all the facilities are. And if the grants are there to support them uh, and the enabling infrastructure, I think that's going to be an important part of it. Mm. Minister O'Brien, too, has announced just uh, before we launched this um, around uh, the the living above pubs and, uh, and, and other retail premises, bringing these premises back down to full occupancy and easing the planning restrictions on those. And I think that's all going to help contribute 
to people actually choosing and saying we want to do this but also local authorities are, are, are buying up there's targets in here for local authorities to compulsory purchase uh, older buildings in town centres and bring them up to a really high level of thermal efficiency for uh, for social housing so there's a lot of opportunity there that we really just want to tap into over the next decade mm. and would that opportunity offset the cost because uh, when you look at a lot of these buildings uh, many of them are derelict and uh, the cost could be massive uh, on the other hand as you say there is that opportunity and uh, I mean if uh, the building belonged to the shop owner at street level uh, I mean there's opportunities there for rent uh, and then for all of the shop owners in the town if uh, that was duplicated the people living above the shops would be in the town every day and therefore shopping in the town and so on. That's exactly it, Michael. That's exactly what we want to see happen. When, when we see the decline of, of, of local independent retailers over the last uh, decade and more, we can uh, t- attribute a lot of that to edge of town development and large retail multiples. And, you know, so I think the more families you have living in town centres, the more they will shop in the local butchers and in the, in the local bakers, and all of that vibrancy will come back in. Mm. And it's something, as I said, in Ireland, we've done really well for centuries. It's really trying to to refocus on that again. Mm. Uh, but the cost, uh, as I say, will it offset uh, that? Uh, will the opportunity offset the cost? I think so. If you yeah. think um, certainly, that, you know, the grant schemes, need, the incentives need to be there to ensure that we can support families and local authorities to do this. But secondly, what what it, it means in terms of families' quality of life, in terms of uh, perhaps not even having to have a car in a town centre, uh, is. You know, it's it's immeasurable because they, there's there's a lot of the 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 cost that they may have to invest in bringing a property up to a high level, high standard, will be offset by uh, savings in other areas of their lifestyle. So, it is about a, a reimagination of what our urban centres are. And if we look at perhaps uh, new communities who come from all over the world uh, over the last. 20, 30 years, many of them have been used to living in old urban centres for, 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 uh, in, their own, in their own countries. So they're, you know, they love the town centres. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there uh, for, for families uh, who really would like to, as a lifestyle choice, want to live in a town centre. OK, so uh, I suppose uh, that's the theory. Uh, how do you put this into practice? Uh, you'd have regeneration officers and uh, teams work uh, on uh, realising uh, this vision, if you like. Uh, when does this work begin? It begins now, and, and in many ways it has begun. And Minister uh, Burke is, is setting up a, a new National Town Centre's First Office, uh, is establishing a Town Centre's First Toolkit. As I said, the Town Centre Health Checks will roll out and the town regeneration officers. All of this will kick into gear and there'll be an oversight committee to, to ensure its implementation. So this is not just a plan that's going to sit on a shelf. It's going to be very active and proactive over the next decade and beyond. OK, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning with that. Uh, that's Minister of State for Heritage and Electoral Reform, Malcolm, I beg your pardon, Malcolm Noonan. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've all been uh, shocked uh, by uh, the report of uh, the CAMS service in uh, South Kerry, the Child Adolescent Mental Health Services, uh, and indeed uh, how uh, one doctor in particular was misdiagnosing patients and uh, the wrong medication was uh, given to so many people, and how the concern now is uh, that that problem, or those problems if you like, extended out past that. Now, the AD HD Ireland group uh, is saying that uh, the families of uh, those with ADHD must be listened to when uh, the South Kerry Cam's report is 
being reviewed. Uh, let's uh, speak to Ken Kilbride, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of ADHD Ireland. Good morning to you, Ken, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. I think uh, some of uh, the young people who were failed in South Kerry suffered from ADHD. Uh, maybe you begin by telling us uh, what it is uh, in uh, simple terms, if you would, please. Indeed. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. So um, ADHD is a condition. Um, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, and within that, the sort of, there's sort of three elements. So there's the attention deficit, um, then there's hyperactivity, and then there's impulsivity. And um, when you have all those three together, and then it comes a difficulty in your life, you can get a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, so we expect um, you know, that the prevalence rate for children is about 5%. Mm. Um, so th- in our uh, how does it manifest itself? Uh, I think ADHD children are generally thought of as uh, problematic children, are they? They're angry uh, and they don't have uh, much attention, so they're not doing well in school and that sort of thing? That's the sort of thing, but um, again, they're not necessarily problematic. See, an awful lot of children you know, um, slip through the, the, uh, the, the system and don't always get picked up. You know, and a typical example of that would be girls. Mm. And so what we do know is that, you know, the prime age for getting a diagnosis is 8 to 12. Um, But in that age range for getting a diagnosis, boys are diagnosed four times more often than girls. Right. Um, And that's because the boys, you know, there's an old saying, you know, uh, girls internalise, boys externalise. Right, yeah. So girls will Mm. internalise their ADHD, Mm. not causing a problem in the classroom. The boys are bouncing off the walls. Yeah, they're kicking out. Yeah, Yeah. all right. Uh, And, uh, I mean, I think there's uh, been questions over ADHD as actually being a a disorder. I think uh, some people would uh, think that uh, they're just being bold, they're just bad, um, and uh, that uh, this is uh, a name given on something that existed uh, for eternity. Indeed, yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, um, you know, we often say in the office, you know, this is one of the challenges that we do fight around the condition. Um, and, you know, we would also use the term, you know, it's the naughty child syndrome. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it could be, uh, it's bad parenting. Mm. But we now know, you know, there's enough science out there now at this stage to show that, you know, um, people are born with ADHD, it affects them across their lifespan. There's been brain imaging work done to show that, you know, people with ADHD have different neural pathways, there's slightly different brain structures. So people are born with it. Mm. Right. And um, so what you find is, you know, that while it does cause difficulties, you know, across the lifespan, um, you, know, you know, if you go back to some, something like Darwin, you know, it's always been in humanity. It has a benefit in human society and it's always going to be around. Okay. Um, so it's just, you know, it hasn't been acceptable. We now need to get around to doing that. But if it's correctly diagnosed, it can be treated very effectively. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt on that. It is one of the more very manageable conditions. And as I say, it does a, a span across the entire lifespan. Um, but the, all the research, and that's one of the most positive messages we do have, is that, you know, once you can get assessed, and forgive me for prefacing the mm-hmm. words, but, you know, get the right treatment, and, um, you know, life outcomes improve. All right. And, and that is the important part of this discussion about what's happening through the CAM service, uh, because uh, even if it is uh, identified correctly, it, it, it can be treated very effectively if it's treated correctly. Absolutely, yes. Um, and what we would say on that is, you know, the best outcomes are delivered. And, you know, and for, you know the international research does back this up, is that, you know, what's called a multimodal approach. And um, so, again, um, medication is usually part of the treatment if it's, you know, um, ADHD, sorry, forgive me, will uh, mm. exist on a spectrum, so mild, moderate or severe. 
If you're mild, you probably wouldn't require medication. Um, but if it's moderate, medication might be indicated. Uh, but medication itself will not solve ADHD. And um, you need those other, you know, um, other treatments, you know, around behavioural management, and um, possibly OT, even speech and language therapy, things like that. When you put them together with things like medication, you produce really, really good outcomes. Mm. And your concern. Uh, what is that? Is it that people are not being diagnosed and if they are, that they're being prescribed the wrong medication? Well, generally, we know one thing is, you know, that um, as you were saying, in Ireland, you know, taking the 5% prevalence rate, there's about 60,000 children. Um, we don't know, there's no official figure how many children are getting diagnosed. Now, let's be honest, not all children with ADHD are going to need diagnosis and treatment. Um, but we do know that, you know, maybe 20 to 50% of those children that require treatment are getting treatment. Mm. And so we know that, you know, that they are falling through the systems. Um, And then we do know that, you know, once they do get into the system, that, you know, um, medication is underprescribed. And so they're not always getting the right treatment either. Mm. Um, And then we saw this report coming out, you know, from uh, South Kerry, which was awful. And, you know, the Taoiseach said, you know, it was very serious, unacceptable, profoundly serious issues. Um, you know, Paul Reid said it was terrible. Um, mm. You know, the Mental Health Commission have said, you know, um, it represents a catastrophic failure of oversight. And, um, you know, it was, you know, shocking beyond belief. Mm. Um, but, you know, one of the concerns that we would have is that, you know, in terms of getting the right treatment going forward, um, you know, the Taoiseach did mention that they were looking to have a, um, a prescribing review across all the 72, 73 CAMs in the country. Um, but we do know what has happened in the past, you know, particularly around medication reviews, is that, you know, um, me- clinicians become cautious. Um, and we do know, you know, just going through from experience, now, we don't necessarily advocate, you know, medication um, as one, con- as one uh, level of treatment over another. But, you know, the research will show that medication does work um, and, you know, it-, it is shown to be safe as well. Mm. Certainly there has been, and uh, there is there a resistance among parents and not to put their children on medication. Um, and certainly, you know, the uh, some, you know, headlines and some of the reporting around this, you know, where children, you know, may become zombies, mm. um, you know, is incorrect. Um, you know, certainly the research and certainly the um, resort, or sorry, the report from South Kerry mm. would show that, you know, that um, probably the, uh, we can't talk about individual cases, yeah, yeah. Um, that the, the zombie side of it was probably due to the overprescription of antipsychotics as opposed to ADHD medication. Mm. Um, so again, we'd like to get out the message, you know, that um, if you are having a child going through the system and, you know, medication is there, there's lots of information out there about it um, and there's lots of good information out there about it. And, you know, mm. have a look at that before you make any decisions. But, 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 but your concern would be uh, that uh, there's um, too many children who are not being prescribed, uh, who are, are not receiving medication that they would benefit from, uh, and that uh, it's twofold, that there are also children then uh, who are on medication, perhaps shouldn't be, or that the medication shouldn't be as strong or the medication isn't appropriate for them. Well, certainly, you know, that came through very, very strongly from the Sound Kerry report. Mm. Um, now, obviously, one of the things that they are going to do is do a review um, around this and, you know, and other aspects of treatment. And, you know, and the Mental Health Commission would have said, you know, as, as part of this process, they're going to put together an, an independent panel um, to agree the scope and it's going to be overseen. And um, so, you know, from our perspective, you know, as ADHD Ireland, you know, our position would very, very strongly be that, you know, when you talk about independent experts, there's no greater expert out there about having ADHD than a person with ADHD. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, we'd call on, you know, the Mental Health Commission to make sure that, you know, um, if not ADHD Ireland involved, certainly that they would have people with ADHD involved as independent experts in any review going mm. forward. Um, it's terribly simplistic to say this, uh, but uh, it's very hard not to think it. Uh, is the solution not to make sure that children are seen by people who are qualified to see them, people who are qualified to assess them, uh, and people who uh, are qualified to, to prescribe in line with that assessment, and if they're not qualified, that they're overseen by somebody who's qualified? Um, the short answer to that is yes. And... Um, it does. It's not always happening, and <clears throat> and that's what I mean. That 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 has been or was the problem in South Kerry, and I think the fear is that that's being replicated elsewhere in the country. Indeed, we do know that um, there have been figures going back over, you know, since two thousand and eight, and um, that CAMS haven't had a full resource of staff, um, and that's on two sides of the house. <clears throat> so you know, CAMS will have what's called multidisciplinary teams, and um, so one side that would be the psychiatrist is usually the lead. Um, and they can do the medication. But on the other side, they'd also have, you know, the psychologists, the speech and language therapies and the OT. Um, they always haven't had both sides of the house there to do that. But you're right, in terms of the medication side, um, there has been, you know, um, junior doctors doing it without supervision. Um, and again, we've seen the results of that down in South Kerry. And, you know, they are going to do the review of the 72 cams around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, honestly, we obviously can't, you know, prejudge the report, but, you know, mm. Um, South Kerry uh, hopefully seems to be an outlier because, um, you know, we do get parents talking to us on a regular basis, you know, when they go to their camps and what's happening. Um, we're not seeing the same story coming from around the country. Yeah. Um, but hopefully the re- when the review goes through or gets completed, and I th- um, and you'll be looking yeah. to do the review by the end of this year, yeah. by the end of Q3. Uh, I think uh, it'll throw up other questions as well, won't yeah. it, Ken? Uh, because, uh, I mean, we're talking about problems in the system. Getting into the system can be another day's work. Oh, that's an entire... Well, that's one of the problems, you know, um, particularly for children with ADHD, mm. is that in terms of, you know, CAMS, because of their, you know, operating maybe 60% of the staff they had, you know, 14 years ago, um, they operate on the basis of priority. And, you know, nobody has an issue with that. You know, if there's someone with suicidality or a child with you know, eating disorders or other serious mental health conditions, they need to be seen today. Um, but mm. what happens then is, you know, that <clears throat> children with ADHD get put on a waiting list. And that waiting list can be one, two years. And the difficulty with that is then, you know, that's nearly two years schooling lost. Yeah. And for a child with ADHD, you know, they need to try and catch up. Yeah, you don't get that time back. I mean, you just don't get that time back. Okay, well, hopefully there'll be some good out of uh, this review and uh, we'll learn from the mistakes uh, that will be in the past, uh, if I can put it that way, Ken. But uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Ken Kilbride, Chief Executive Officer of ADHD Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, Seamus and Dundalk, thank you for your call. Seamus says, uh, these new grants sound great for retrofitting homes, but where are hard-pressed home owners going to find the money? As uh, the grant only covers some of the costs, so really, is it an option for most people? He says, I don't think so. Maybe those who have €25,000 to spare will go ahead and do it. Uh, and I suppose uh, it's a great way of saving money if you can 
can afford to do it, James. Uh, but there is the other argument uh, that uh, you're talking about grants of around 25,000 if you're going to pay 50,000. So yes, you do have to come up with the other 25,000, but there will be low interest uh, loans uh, available from the government for people to do that. Uh, and there will be other things um, that uh, won't be costing as much. Uh, we'll be getting the full details of what's available tomorrow, but you're talking about new windows and doors and insulation and all of that sort of thing, uh, which will some cases run into hundreds or uh, thousands, but maybe not 50,000, uh, which would be the full deep fit. Peter Indrahada says, my home could definitely do with being better insulated, so I'll be interested to hear the finer details of uh, the scheme and whether I can afford my part of it. A lot of people certainly would have all of the money to be able to pay up front and then wait to be reimbursed. Thanks, uh, Peter, for that. Uh, another call from Mary Indrahada about these grants, and she says, I'm struggling to heat my home and to pay the bills because of uh, the way the bills are going up Uh, that's what I want help with at the moment there's no way I'll ever be able to afford to retrofit my home my daughter who has a mortgage has to drive to Dublin every day and the crazy price of petrol is a huge burden on her financially that's what we need help with thanks Mary for that I I think uh, maybe we'd all be uh, wise to see what is being announced tomorrow uh, because we may not be able to afford uh, these very expensive uh, deep heat uh, fans uh, um, the electric fans uh, that will be used in homes uh, for providing heat but you might be able to get the insulation or uh, to get um, your attic insulated or the the, the stuff pumped into the walls as the case may be which would be a a lot cheaper but you can save an awful lot of heat doing that Uh, and uh, I'm not sure how much of the cost of it uh, the uh, grants are going to cover but it could be substantial and we'll get the details of all of that tomorrow. Now let's uh, talk about uh, the post office network. Post offices have been under a great strain for an awful long period of time uh, and that wasn't helped by social protection paying people Uh, through their bank accounts uh, because of COVID. That's been turned around, but there is concern about this. Let's speak uh, to Kieran McEntee, who's the Vice President of uh, the Irish Postmasters Union. Uh, Good morning to you once again, Kieran, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm not sure, but I imagine you've seen uh, the article in the journal.ie. It's describing this move as insanity. Uh, It's an issue that's going to be raised in the Dáil by Social Democrat TD Gary Gannon, who can't understand why people would be forced to travel 40, 50 kilometres, stand in a a queue of people uh, to wait to get paid to their social welfare when uh, they could have it paid into their bank account without all of that hassle. Uh, What do you make of those comments? The first two comments, there's a post office within 15 kilometres in rural Ireland and three kilometres in urban Ireland, so that is not exactly right. So anywhere you go around, there's a post office within 15 kilometres, so that, that's not right. Some and fella in the, uh, along the cork Kerry border told the journal he has to drive 55 kilometres to his post office. Well, that's unusual. Look, right. all around Rahada, Monaghan, Cav and Meath, roughly 15 kilometres. And that's, that's, co- it's that's co- the social protection yeah. uh, criteria for the post office to make the payment. And it's costing them 45, 50 euro for petrol. Yes, yes, Meg, I agree with that. Yeah. that this happens. But I mean, if, I, if I'm going to work, it costs me 45 or 50 euros to go to work. There's people from Drogheda, Dundalk, Monaghan, driving to Dublin every day to earn five or 600 euros a week. So mm-hmm. it's the exact same thing. So we all have to drive if we want to get to, get to work. So okay. it's the same thing. You have to go and get your social welfare. And it's, it's coming back to the post office. The reason why it's coming back to the post office is, is 
to that that's the person receiving the money and he read the the, the article yeah. uh, in the paper there and that's why most all post office you have to present yourself mm. you have to present your card you have to swipe your card and then the payment's made to you. So it's, we, fair chance it's going to be the person that lifts the money. And uh, back there, they were saying a lot of people were out of the country lifting the money. So this means that you go to the post office and, and get the money and it's you that's getting it. OK, but uh, we're talking today about people having to choose between eating or heating their homes because of the cost of everything going through the roof. If a quarter of your dole is going on petrol, just so that you can get your dole, uh, that's a, an awful lot of money. Plus, then there's the environmental impact of it. Yeah, Meg, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that. That may be down in Cork, mm. but I said again there a couple of minutes ago 15 kilometres is the farthest distance anybody has to travel to a post office, or three kilometres in urban areas. That's the criteria, and I don't like being going back to it. That is the criteria. Whatever that happened in Cork, it's different. No post office in Ireland was closed over the last in the last deal we did with Anpost because that was the rule they picked the areas where the post offices was they picked the destination and distance between each post office and it proved there was no more than 15 kilometres mm. yeah but should people not have the option well they brought it back to the post office to do with fraud that's what it's brought back to because mm. there's a, in, in the article 2 shows how what fraud was in the, in the post office and that's why it's back that you you can lift your your pension uh, uh, you can get your pension in the bank yeah. you can get the children's allowance in the bank you can get all the other payments but this is an on an uh, job seekers allowance so that you present yourself that you're you're, 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 yourself you're the there post you're the there moment. physically and you can't be claiming the dole uh, and living in Timbuktu that's that's make very well said yourself. That's that's what it is. Is to present yourself at the post office that you lift the money. The same as when you go in to sign on. So you have to go in and sign on the exact same thing. But you come every week to lift your money, and you're not out of the country. The money being paid into bank accounts, which it has been proven there in in, in different different reports that money were paid to people who were out, that out, were out of the country, not not in this country at all and the money was being paid. So this is to stop it and bring it back that the person is coming to the post office to lift the money. Mm. And they have to have proof of identity and, and so on, I'm sure. So that You have to have your PPS mm. card. And, 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 and fair play to the post office, and we do it very, very strictly in all, all our post offices, in Dundalk, Louth, Mon and Cavan. If somebody else comes with your card, you don't get the money. Mm. On anything, and you've seen it, seen it happen down the country. There, I know it was a bit of a, uh, a, a smart thing that gentleman died. Did the that fella produced the card, but he, the, the postmaster or the postmistress that was there would, did not pay out because it wasn't the person in front of him. Mm. You can get in, in for your pension and that you can get a a, de- a designated person. To, that signs a form that they can lift the money but for job seekers you have to present yourself Yeah, I think we're all still scratching our heads at what happened in Carlo that time it really was beyond belief wasn't it yeah, it was yeah, like, but, yeah. But, it, but it proved that the post office works that mm. they, they didn't pay the money out Mm. Uh, what about COVID? Uh, I mean, that seems to be a legitimate concern that's been raised in, in this article in the journal.ie that uh, you're going into uh, uh, somewhere with a lot of people and 
unnecessarily so if it could be paid into your bank you wouldn't need to go down to the post office and stand with Well I, I am a staunch supporter of sport like I mean the Viva fifth last Saturday for, for a great win we had all the different places around the country there uh, matches filled in and the same people maybe this would be going to football matches and sitting alongside some fella from Louth and Cav and Mana and Mead so I, I, I don't buy that because every post office there's a designated two metres distance for you to stand back and it's up to yourself to look after yourself you have to wear a mask and have the sanitizers as you go through the door so everything's there for you and uh, the people they have to sign a form but the sanitizers all through the post office be provided by Anpost. Mm. Okay, well this is going to be raised uh, with the government uh, it seems uh, is that a, of concern to you? Well, I have to say my local minister, Heather Humphreys, uh, brought it back to the post office. And I think, to be fair, and people should be realistic about it, I think it's a fair thing that you come to present yourself. A lot of things be raised by politicians that's not in power, but it's the, it's the government we, we're, we're looking for for the post office. And it is a good decision that people have to come and present themselves and present their card for to lift their money. They're getting it being paid to them, so I think it's, it's a good idea and it's right that it comes to the post office. Mm, but, if, I mean, half the objective at least is to keep you in business. Uh, you, you need services uh, in order to stay open. Yes, Mike, there's no question about it, and we need more services. We mm. get a lot more services by the government. We Actually, we are working on that at the minute. Uh, we're meeting all the different politicians uh, for this, and that's, we want more services. And then we want to keep rural and urban Ireland open, because at, we go back to the old line. If the post office is out out of that area, the money's not been spent on the area. Mm. So if the money's going to be spent in Drogheda, Louth, or Dundalk, all them, any gas, and all these different places where the post office is. So a lot of the money be spent there and keeps local businesses open. That's yeah. what it is. It's all to do with keeping local businesses open. I, I suppose the question that Gary Gannon, the Social uh, Democrats TD, is asking is if uh, keeping you open is worth hurting other people because they'll have to. Uh, get to the post office when it could be paid electronically into their bank account uh, and whether that's uh, that distance of 55 kilometres or 3 kilometres they'll at least have to pay the bus fare or something uh, uh, and then you've got all of the stuff to do with the environment uh, which is to do with the travel uh, and the petrol that's being used and the concerns about COVID as well. Well, uh, well I don't agree with the, with, with the people. people ha- I have to get to work or you have to get to work. So it's the same thing. People have to get travel here. We have a rural link in a lot of areas now and people have to get to work if they're going to work. And maybe they're, maybe they're on uh, maybe 150 euros more mm. be out working. So people have to get go to work as well. So I don't accept what he's saying. And, again, and everybody, they always come up with the big the big gap. There's never the small gap. It's great that the money. I know. Some people like I, I had um, an RTE presenter down here just four years ago, and he 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 interviewed a lady that was lifting the benefit. And she split her benefit down to him, but she had no car, and she split every benefit, what she, her money was split to, her 188 euros a week at that time, yeah. how he, and he didn't believe me. So, I mean, and I didn't set her up for it. She just told him, that's what I pay for, 30 euro rent, mm. 15 euro light, yeah. 10 euro mobile phone, and went mm. through the whole money. Yeah, and she was educating her young son, which has turned out to be a real... Uh, successful uh, her son did so like I mean she reared her son to do mm. that and uh, uh, 
he didn't believe me. But that's the way it is. Some people haven't got charge. Where I'm sitting here, I, I can know. look at But we're talking about people who are trying to live off 203 euro a week. Uh, I mean, any, any cost is a huge amount. That's right, yes, any cost. But if, 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 if you're in a town, some people have to take a taxi down to the post office for to get their pants, and they do that to, for the support in the local area. Hmm. Yeah, but uh, if, you didn't <laughs> ha- if you didn't have to pay for the taxi, you, you could buy uh, tomorrow's dinner, you know, and I think that's uh, what's called into question here, given the rate of inflation, apart from anything else, as I was saying at the start, uh, for that matter, Kieran. Yeah, but, but but in local areas where people can walk, there are some people, uh, people can walk to the, the, the local service. And yeah, they have, yeah, and they, they won't be worried about it. So, so, get their food. so yeah. should there be choice? Yes, be choice. Well, well, I think that the, the, the job seeker should be in the, uh, you should present yourself. It's okay. a payment, it's different than the children's allowance or your pension. Yeah, okay. the, the pension you're entitled to, your, your um, children's allowance or other benefits like that you're entitled to. The job seeker, you apply for it. It's showing that you're available that it's you that's presenting yourself and that's what I think anyway, that's right. my opinion Well it'll be raised with the government uh, it seems uh, so we'll leave uh, the debate there for the moment but it sounds like it's one we will return to Kieran, thank you indeed thank you for joining much. us on the programme at this morning Kieran McEntee is the Vice President of the Irish Postmasters Union Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The eye clinic at uh, the primary care centre in Drogheda is not capable of functioning at uh, the present moment. That's uh, according uh, to local Labour Party TD, Jed Nash, who says the reason that uh, the eye clinic is not capable of functioning is because it has no staff. He's written to the HSE and has asked them to outline how they plan to deal with all of this. Jed Nash is on the line and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us on the programme today. That's an odd situation that there is no staff. It is um, and this is really starting to pinch now with um, families with young children across County Loud. Um, this um, three-person uh, primary care service for uh Eyes, uh, predominantly for um, young children and medical care patients was set up, Michael, in 2017. And quite frankly, uh, I, I haven't heard a single complaint about the service since then. In fact, quite the contrary, um, constituents who have been using the service are full of praise for staff um, for the service they get. It's very responsive, very professional. But because of a, a, a series of um, resignations, people moving on to different positions, which they're entitled to do, uh, leave and so on. Uh, we're now in a situation where we've a perfect storm, where the service isn't staffed at all, and uh, there's now a serious backlog uh, of appointments, which is really impacting uh, on young children in particular. I've got a lot of representations from people since Christmas especially, um, drawing my attention to this. Uh, I initially wrote to the HSE uh, uh, just uh, over the Christmas period and received a, an answer early in the new year and I think the answer is, is uh, with respect not entirely complete and, and doesn't describe the totality of the situation that's why I followed it up and I, I want to see when the HSE plan to recruit additional staff not just one staff member or two because it's required uh, the service is required to be run by, by three prof- professionals an ophthalmologist who would head up the service uh, an optometrist and then an autopsist as well who would deal with if anyone's familiar with uh, eye care for, for children who would deal with for example referrals from you know the public health mm. nurse who would go into schools and assess children for uh, particular needs and if uh, the public health nurse thought there was a problem with a potential squint for example they would be referred to the service the ophthalmologist uh, who's doing you know, 
specialist, medical, medically yeah. qualified doctor, would kind of diagnose and treat and then refer to the orthoptist or the, or the optometrist. Uh, they're all specialised roles. Uh, yes. uh, uh, is it possible to recruit? Are, are the people there? Well, this is the thing. And look, this is a problem right across the um, health service uh, where there is a, a lack of trained um, professionals uh, in our country. It's often the case that physicians are advertised elsewhere. I know where uh, there were um, issues in terms of backlog, backlogs, uh, in terms of appointments um, that, that haven't been dealt with in other disciplines uh, or where vacancies arose. Um, the agency went to the UK and elsewhere to try to, to recruit. Uh, and I think they should do that. Uh, I plan to raise this in the doll uh, this week. I've uh, requested to John Coyle's office uh, time yeah. to have this matter debated because it's so severe. Uh, we don't have the numbers and I don't have access to the numbers. At this well, they're, 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 they're mounting up, uh, I'm sure. Uh, it's uh, it's um, three people man the clinic usually. Uh, does it operate five days a week? Um, I think that it does. Right. I'm not entirely certain, but well, well, that, that would, and three people would get through a, a lot of patients in the course of a day, whether it's three days or five days. Uh, I'm sure it's a busy clinic, uh, and uh, we're talking about it uh, being closed, effectively closed, for close to two months now. You said that it was mid-December, so we're coming into mid-February, so that's close to two months. That that must be mounting up very quickly. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the positions is is, is actually vacant since uh, October. So, and, and right. it does require mm. it does require um, this three person service to run uh, an effective um, uh, eye care eye care clinic. And uh, you know, if you, if even one of those positions uh, isn't filled, then that causes a problem. What the HC has told me is that uh, people can you know be referred to. Uh, specialist in Lake County Hospital or in Our Lady Lord's Hospital. That's not realistic. Uh, they are of themselves very busy indeed dealing with your very acute um, yeah, eye care um, requirements. Mm. This is about primary care. This is, I mean, to, to explain to your listeners, many listeners, of course, would, would have dealt with the service, particularly for young children. Uh, there's, I think, two um, eye, care, uh, eye test opportunities available to national school children I think it may be in junior infants and then fifth or sixth when you're leaving, fifth or sixth class when you're leaving um, national school. And, um, you know, effectively now this, this this service has been in cold storage uh, since October, November, certainly uh, since December. Uh, and that's going to create a very serious backlog. And we know early intervention mm. is really important. And kids missed an awful lot of school as well in classroom teaching and the reality is that if a child has a problem with their eyes that goes undiagnosed and mm. untreated uh, that means then they, they slip further back and may become disruptive in school and that affects their education and affects mm. the classroom so this is really concerning. And the problem with the eyes can get worse uh, because of the damage that's done but uh, if uh, there are services in the hospitals those services were there anyway so uh, the deficit continues to be the deficit or a deficit of uh, the same scale which is that the clinic that was there in tandem with the hospital services is now not there uh, and that is uh, the problem which is leading uh, to this backlog and undoubtedly an awful lot of people uh, who are, are not being seen and as that continues to grow the waiting times if it ever is restored will uh, continue to grow in line with it. Exactly and that adds costs to parents as well I mean parents have made uh, approaches to the HSE uh, to for example obtain vouchers for um, your private consultations uh, I mean it is the case that vouchers can be accessed through um, your private uh, optician practices for glasses and so on. Um, so uh, th- 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 that that is something that, that that is there, but that doesn't address the problem. Um, at this point in time, there are probably several hundred uh, children uh, who have been referred who have yet to be seen. Uh, so this is a serious backlog, and I 
have asked the HSE to further clarify precisely what it is they're doing and what their timeline is to re- replace um, these roles uh, of people who are no longer in position. It's a really uh, serious issue, Michael. And, yeah. you know, in this time as well of rising cost of living, I mean, parents have been contacting me saying, you know, we're out the door with additional costs in terms of fuel, energy, rent, uh, so on and so forth. Food bills are going up. Everything is going up. Uh, and now to be uh, potentially loaded, uh, you know, having this loaded onto you as well, mm. it's just a, a problem that families can do without. Okay. And the government says it's going to act and act this week. There'll be an announcement this week about how it hopes to help. Uh, low-income households uh, who are suffering because of uh, inflation, uh, you uh, contend that they're not acting quick enough, uh, that they're dragging their heels on this. They're certainly not acting quickly enough. Um, I mean, it's 12 days now since the government voted down uh, for the Gael Fianna Fáil and the Green Party. All of our TVs voted down uh, a, a very uh, comprehensive Labour Party motion uh, that proposed a number of measures, for example, cutting back fuel and energy bills, expanding the fuel allowance to those who don't have it, freezing rents and pay increases especially for low-income workers. We proposed all of that in a detailed way to the doll 12 days ago in a motion that uh, I brought forward and they decided at that point in time they wouldn't support it because they said that uh, the measures was twofold really, uh, the, the rationale for not supporting it. The first was that the measures, as far as they were concerned, were unaffordable uh, and secondly they said that uh, in the context of the national debt it's not something that they wanted to do because they didn't want to load additional recurring costs uh, onto the state. Uh, we certainly can't afford to be driving people from a social or economic point of view, Michael, into mm. poverty. And there are far too many people in this country who are on the brink. There are people coming to me over the last few weeks who, objectively, you would think we're doing well. They have reasonably good jobs. You would think that, uh, on the face of it, that uh, they are doing reasonably okay financially. In fact, uh, the opposite is the case, and they are really struggling. And what we need now is a targeted package, mm. not a gimmicky €100 Euros off your electricity bill that uh, a lot of people don't need. Uh, most people are in need, need a lot more than 100 euros and the, the government have they're like rabbits caught in the, head, in the headlights I mean they were warned in the budget in October uh, when we said there should be inflation busting um, social welfare increases that 2 to 3% on the minimum wage and 2 to 3% in social welfare uh, wasn't going to cut it because we had a very serious cost of living crisis brewing and interestingly the Taoiseach said in RTE that this is going to be a medium term problem consistently he's been saying this is going to be a short term problem and the onus now is in government's deliver a package to help low and middle income families mm. uh, and uh, when you talk about VAT and social welfare uh, to uh, make changes uh, like that, you'd be talking about a, a budget. Uh, is this crisis, because I think it's recognised by everybody that it is a crisis, government is describing it in those terms, uh, is it a crisis that warrants a, a mini-budget? Well, well, it is. And, you, you know, who, who, who defines that it's only every October that we should make changes to our tax code and to significant changes to our social welfare system? Um, the government needs to have the back of people and you know we have had in periods of crisis uh, two budgets per year you might remember the late Brian Bennon uh, had to do that um, when uh, the country uh, uh, faced a financial uh, crisis uh, back in uh, 2008 2009 it's 2010 and beyond um, it was <laughs> a feature of our political system at that point because mm-hmm. things were changing so quickly and the fortunes of the country were changing so quickly. So we need to prioritise the welfare of our people. And if that requires um, changes to our tax codes, changes 
structural changes to our social welfare system to help people through this very, very difficult time. Let's do that. And if it means as well linking social welfare increases to uh, cost of living index to make sure uh, that uh, people have a, a, a reasonable standard of income, people who are depending on the state for their income, let's do that. I mean, the country is doing well. Uh, the government can't, on the one hand, clap themselves on the back and say, that the economy is performing exceptionally well. It is, and we all want to see the economy perform exceptionally well. Plants on the one hand, uh, as they look, you know, we exchequer returns, and then decide that they're not going to actually redistribute redistribute some of that, those hard-earned tax revenues to people who need it most in a targeted way. And that's why I'm saying Mm. let's focus on VAT, because VAT is a tax on consumption. If you're low uh, paid, and if you're depending on the state for your income, uh, more of your income goes out in VAT. Would you support the government going ahead with the carbon taxes? Um, the carbon taxes are boxed off, uh, and they, they, they are defined now in legislation that was passed mm-hmm. actually uh, last year. There's more than one way of reducing energy costs. And remember, you know, this week the government will be thankfully announcing a new scheme for mm-hmm. retrofitting that has to be affordable. Uh, and half of your carbon tax will actually be going into paying for that scheme. And you support that really approach? Sure. You, you, we, we, we support the principle of carbon taxes, Michael. We, we have to. Uh, in the longer term, it makes an awful lot of sense because we need to decarbonise our economy and use that money. Um, that's really 2-3% to 3% of uh, what it costs to fill your car. Um, we need to ring fence that to, to retrofit um, homes. The best way, actually, in the short term of reducing the price of the fuel that you put into your car uh, or reducing your electricity bill is okay. actually to cut flash. And, you know, compared to January 2020, the last kind of comparable months in terms of VAT returns, <laughs> the VAT returns are 400 million euros in excess of January 2020, this pre-pandemic. 400 million euro would allow you to um, cut uh, the VAT on fuel and energy uh, very significantly for the next year. Okay. We'll have a real impact on, on the bottom line for, for working people. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you as always for joining us today. Labour Party TD for Louth and Eastmeath Jednash. Michael Reed on LMFM. Nursing home residents are some of the most vulnerable members of our society. And if you care about safeguarding the most vulnerable members of our society, the families of 23 people who died from COVID in Dalgan House Nursing Home are asking for your support. Let's hear a little bit more. Vivian McNally, whose father Dominic was one of the 23 people who died around April, May of 2020, is on the line with us. Good morning to you, Vivian, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. You've started a a petition. You're asking people for their support to support your call for a commission of inquiry. Uh, And you say that the reason you want that inquiry is that we need, and that means all of us, I think, Vivian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that means all of us need a mechanism where people are compelled to tell the truth about what occurred, to clarify inconsistencies and to provide learnings for the state in relation to how we care for older people in residential settings. It's clear reading your statement, you have a lot of questions that you want answered. Yes, good morning, Michael. Um, Indeed, um, we do believe this petition will help um, our cause with getting um, Minister Donnelly to initiate a public inquiry. And again, as you said there, our objective um, is to ensure uh, safeguards, regulations, all these things regarding nursing homes. You know, we have to protect our vulnerable. And we've been saying this all along. 
this is coming up on two years now and, you know, not getting responses, getting empty promises, actually, you know, from Stephen Domney. As you're aware, the families did meet with him. We were promised a mechanism to ensure, you know, that um, our voices were heard and we would get answers back. And to date, we're not so... We are exhausting every avenue to do what we can. And it's in everyone's interest, you know, for this... Because we need to know what happened. We need to have the learnings, finding out um, the exact cause. And we don't know if we could have a pandemic, you know, again. And obviously, our loved ones, we have so many questions, so inconsistent um, inconsistencies with records, not reconciling. The, um, the trouble we're, we're having trying to get information um, you know about this we have freedom of information of course and I myself am lucky that I did receive my father's records um, in full mm. which do not make for easy reading at all um, it's it's awful um, and there's people that are still waiting to get their records so um, this needs to be taken serious you know it's going on so long um, and it's leaving us with questions why are we not being answered and what is being hidden from us. Mm. Well, you were under the impression, uh, is one way of putting it, you were under the impression uh, that there would be an inquiry. Uh, The Taoiseach firmly ruled that out a a couple of weeks ago. That came as a bit of a a body blow to everybody, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, how can you just say no like that and say it will take too long? Like, we are in this for the long haul. I think a lot of people know that. It's a very strong group of people. And it's because what we've seen, if other people could see what we've seen and how it hasn't matched up. And, you know, when Emma was speaking with you, um, she had said, you know, it is like for investigators, you know, at this stage. I never thought I would know so much um, about this medical, you know, assessments on people and care plans. And... What we have discovered now is where is the follow-through for nursing homes? Who are they answerable to? And can our Taoiseach not see that? I mean, he is aware of Dalgan. And do people not deserve to know the answers at this stage? And what's an inquiry going to do? It is just going to show where people failed and where we can learn going ahead. That's all. Mm. It's not, you know, it's safeguarding of vulnerable um, and really, I just can't understand why that is not being heard mm. and listened to. But, but, but there's a question of justice as well, isn't there? I, I mean, that the truth is transparent uh, and that would be the just approach. The Taoiseach has said there's other ways of doing this. I'm not sure what those ways are that he has in mind, uh, but he's ruled out a commission of inquiry. But whilst you and the others believe that lessons have to be learned from this, uh, in fear of another pandemic or something else uh, in years to come. Um, but it is that question of justice for you personally, is it not, out of respect and in honour of your father's memory? Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, all of our loved ones, I would feel like I have failed my father if um, I didn't continue on. I know my father's not going to be saying that. But all of us, because, as I said, what I have read in his records, I mean, it's just horrendous. And it has to be just somebody has to be accountable. We're all accountable in life for every action we take. 
And in this instance, the people that knew have to be accountable. Answers have to be given. The truth has to be given. Why is it not? If people have nothing to hide, I've always said this, people have nothing to hide, why not come out and say, okay, you know, we hadn't got this. You know, they're saying we hadn't got the support. And people knew that they were in crisis. I think that really is gut-wrenching for us to hear because we have said it so many times, we did not know. The families of the loved ones did not know. If I had known, you know, there was what was going on and me standing outside that nursing home, I mean, a few days beforehand, and being told everything was fine. Mm. You know, this is not okay. That's not acceptable to anybody. So, of course... Yeah, and you were hoping to go... You, you were hoping to visit your father to celebrate his 80th birthday, I think, were you? That's right, mm. yeah. Um, and standing outside and my, with absolutely no knowledge. When I say the naively, when I look back now, I really not known and it's just that's that's awful to live with that Mm. you know to know that these people knew and what they said to me was he's fine and he was sleeping he wasn't fine I know by his records he a GP needed to see him a GP was not going in to see him and then when we did see him on the Thursday and were in Dalgan nursing home we were told that everything was fine so is that acceptable? Because not only was my father's life at risk, my mother's, my family, we were all put at risk. And that has never been answered, you know, by that, why they allow that. I mean, that was horrendous. You do not lie about something like that. When we have seen in the freedom of information, nowhere in Dalgan was safe. Nowhere was COVID free on the 13th, yet we were in it on the 16th. So these are... You're a very strong group of people, tightly knit group, uh, I think, and you've been working tirelessly, uh, all 23 families, uh, to get the truth, to bring about the answers uh, so um, that uh, you can feel uh, as though you've done everything uh, in respect of the memory of uh, the loved ones who lost their lives in Dalgan. But it it seems as though uh, that hasn't gone very far. Despite all of your best efforts, uh, the Taoiseach has ruled out this Commission of Inquiry. So now you're asking people to help, to put their name to the campaign through this petition. Uh, and we'll make we'll make the link because it's a big, big, long link. We'll make it. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll make it uh, available uh, on all of the social media and all of that stuff, uh, Vivian. Uh, but it's on uplift.ie. For people who don't follow the link, put, tell us how to, to to find you on uplift.ie. So if you go into yes, uplift.ie, and it's um, the public inquiry. If you put in COVID death at Dalgan Nursing Home, Dundalk. And anybody that, I mean, knows myself or anybody in the families, you know, could contact us through Facebook and we can direct them, you know, where to go to sign it. And um, we are also aware there's a lot of people that would like to sign this but are not tech savvy. And I get that. So we hope to be able to allow people to sign by the old fashioned way, pen and paper at some stage as well. You know, but uh, we know that you know, already when we put it up, you know, the amount of signatures we got. So um, 
We will keep on doing it and bring yeah, it. Yeah, and it, 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 if you have a book that you can sign with an old-fashioned pen, let us know when you have that, and we'll uh, be glad to uh, bring that to people's attention. We'll make uh, yeah, we'll make the link available uh, uh, through all of uh, the LMFM social media and so on. People will know to go to uplift.ie and search, as you said, COVID deaths at Algon Nursing Home in Dundalk. Uh, yeah. I think uh, uh, all of the newspapers, uh, I'm sure, will uh, make the link uh, available and probably through their social uh, media as well so uh, as you say then uh, yourself and uh, the other families then will be uh, also making the link available on Facebook and wherever else for that matter so I'm sure there's a lot of people who'll want to support it uh, because we certainly have had an awful lot of feedback over the last couple of years uh, since you and the other families went through such a a terrible time and inexplicable time Uh, and uh, I think people can understand why you want answers and would want to support you in asking for those answers Uh, and that's all that you're asking them to do is to put their name to this petition to say will you please give these people the answers that they so very much deserve and that they're lost, late, uh, dear loved ones deserve for that matter. Okay, Vivian. All right, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uplift.ie, COVID deaths at Dalgan Nursing Home, Dundalk. And thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks. Thank you indeed. Vivian McNally, whose father, Dominic, passed away at Dalgan House Nursing Home. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's go to Dundalk uh, to speak uh, with Louth County Councillor Fianna Falls, Emma Coffey, who's on uh, the line. Good morning to you, Emma, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a, a night owl or if, like me, you'd have been tucked up in bed at four o'clock in the morning on Saturday night going into Sunday morning. Uh, but for anyone who was up uh, and out and about in the town, there certainly was uh, a lot going on. A, a very serious incident uh, that happened in Dundalk. Tell us uh, what you know about this, if you would, please. Y- yes, Michael, and like you, I was well tucked off in my bed at that stage, but um, what appears to have happened is that uh, in Park Street in Dundalk, which is a very busy street around that time because obviously there's a lot of pubs and nightclubs um, on that street, uh, there was a car driving erratically. The Gardaí were present and uh, they obviously directed for that car vehicle to stop. It didn't. Uh, and then there was the uh, operational kind of lockdown in, in regards to the Gardaí of uh, trying to stop that car. I understand it um, continued out to the Ballymiscanon roundabout where it proceeded to um, injure, basically crash and injure, and uh, minor injuries, I believe, to the Gardaí and injuries to the three passengers in the car. I understand that it was um, the group of people in the car were in their 20s and indeed a young male, uh, 20-year-old, is before the district court this morning in the Drogheda district court sitting in Dundalk uh, being charged with dangerous driving. Well, there was a crash. Um, The two vehicles collided, uh, one car with the guard car uh, and uh, five people needing hospital treatment Mm -hmm. uh, as a result. As you say, it's before the courts, uh, so uh, there's uh, little that can be said uh, because of uh, legal restrictions. But in terms of the attitude towards the Gardaí. Uh, it's something uh, that uh, is becoming uh, a concern uh, on a, it's kind of commonplace uh, that there seems to be little fear of the Gardaí. Would that be your impression, uh, certainly with some people uh, these well, days? I would say with a minority, 
Yeah. Uh, Michael, I would certainly say with a minority. A minority, but too big a minority. Well, yeah. I would say, look, unfortunately, it's always these type of incidents. And I just want to say, uh, you know, this was such a lucky um, incident in the sense that there was no fatalities. And how many times have there's been reports of a, a crash of this nature and fatalities of young people on Gardaí, uh, you know, dur- during the course of the years? Um, so I don't. I, 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 the guards have an extremely tough mm. job. I think indeed over the last two years they've had a really, really tough job, and I don't think the people realise um, how tough they've had it. It's it's not a job for the faint-hearted, uh, and they're, unfortunately they're dealing with the incidences of this where you know people don't abide the rule of the law, and you know it's it's the guardie yeah. then to try and, and 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 bring it to 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 heal, so to speak, or to to halt in relation to it. The statement um, from the Representative Association uh, for the guards uh, really was striking because they were saying that uh, you start a shift as a guard and the way things are, you don't know if you're going to make it home. That, that is true. Uh, and I, I would well believe that. Um, you know, and in, in, in County Loud, Michael, like you've, heard, you've been reporting on it over the years, there's been a high number of, of incidences uh, a significant amount of incidences between Drogheda and Dundalk where the guards have literally put themselves, put their lives on the line uh, to protect um, the, 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 the majority of people out there. Um, you know, it, it, listen, it's no um, surprise that we have two courts in this in this uh, county, mm. and they are effectively full time courts to deal with with you know breaches of legislation. Yeah, and some of them are minor, and some of them are serious. But you know the guards are busy in this county, um, and you know I think the majority of people acknowledge that are aware of that. Uh, the one thing I would strike, uh, Michael, when when I thought about this, you know. Everybody has been in this lockdown for a number of years, and I'm not saying this is a, a, an excuse, but, you know, people seem to think that because the restrictions are lifted, maybe there's a bit of red mist, or maybe people are not thinking, uh, you know, logically or acting in such a manner that they don't seem to realise that they're putting everybody in danger, including We're, themselves. They've gone mad. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and maybe just a bit of a, a rush of blood to the head. And I'm not yeah. saying, commenting mm. on this incident, I'm just saying in general. Yeah. And I am asking for people to maybe just stop and think, yes, it's great we're in the position now where restrictions are, are lifted, but just think about their actions because it's not them mm. that could potentially... 086, 1800, 6... I'm, I'm sorry, Anna. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm. No problem. No problem <laughs> at all, Michael. I don't know what happened there. It's not just themselves that they yeah. could be putting at risk. It's, it's, it's people out there, including our Gardaí. Yeah. We need our Gardaí. We need people to continue to join the Garda. Uh, and we need that level of trust. Yeah, uh, and that we, we we all calm down a little bit uh, and enjoy ourselves and let everybody enjoy themselves. Uh, uh, we weren't uh, trying to do that at four o'clock in the morning, neither you or I. Uh, no, but there were plenty. I can guarantee you, Michael, yeah. there was there was hundreds of people. Out I was just going to say that, and uh, I'm sure there were a lot of uh, motors about as well. They may have yeah. dash cam stuff. They might have people might have seen things. They might have things on their phone because uh, I'm sure there was a lot of activity. And uh, I'm sure the guardy would appreciate any assistance. Uh, in dealing with this case as well if they wanted to pass it on to the guards. Absolutely, and I understand there is a, you know, they can contact the Garda station or the Garda hotline at any time with those those things. And, you know, just in relation to that, you know, people in their 20s and late teens, mm. you know, this is, if they have, if they have video um, 
footage of this incident, um, you know, you're 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 protecting the safety of everybody out there. You know, you're protecting the safety of everybody out there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, listen, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Councillor Emma Coffey on Louth County Council. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 